0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Often I introduce these Beeson Podcasts by saying we're in for a real treat today. But today we're really in for a real treat, because on this sermon series today, we're going to hear a sermon by my interlocutor. He's sitting right across the table from me, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. We've never done this on the series, but for the first time, we're going to hear a sermon that you preach, Dr. Smith, right here at Beeson Divinity School, based on Romans chapter 8, on the glory and the groan. Tell us about this sermon, how, how you came to this theme, how it gestated in your spirit to this point of a sermon on this great theme. Well, Dean,
1: you as you know, I'm preaching, doing the Walking with the Saints conference, mm-hmm. and I'm looking at Charles Haddon Spurgeon as a saint that um, we learn from, and because of his clinical depression for so many years, his right. groaning, I see in his groaning and his travail, our groaning, but I mm-hmm. want. To look at groaning in the light of glory, based upon the bookends of that chapter, chapter eight, verse eighteen, and verse thirty. I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Mm. Those whom he has called, he is also justified. Those he's justified, he's also glorified, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's what I'm trying to do. I want people to know that groaning is temporary, but we can endure it in light of the glory that will be revealed.
0: You know, this text has one of the great verses I think in the Bible on prayer. It's Romans yes. eight twenty six. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with sighs and groans cannot be understood now you, there's a progression here and you bring this out in your sermon that the world is groaning it's broken it's groaning the suffering of the world we see that all around us yes we ourselves are groaning yes there's groaning within us yes and finally there's that point that god the holy spirit is groaning too, exactly
1: and i want to make the point that in the incarnation, God comes from God. Mm. In the the revelation of, of, of God in Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But in the intercession, God talks to God. Mm. God speaks to God. God tells God. God, the Holy Spirit, tells the Father uh, what we would say and then directs what we would say to God in a way that it is based upon the will of the Father so that we receive what God wills for us to have since we don't know what to pray.
0: And so Paul lifts back the curtain in Romans 8 just a little bit and gives us a glimpse yes. into that inner Trinitarian life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, exactly. and invites us into that yes. presence.
1: Yes, yes. Wow.
0: Now, if you can remember, as you were thinking and praying about this, as the sermon was coming to expression in your own spirit, what's it like to go from that experience to actually delivering the sermon before a live congregation, as you did here at Beeson? Well, I started revisiting my life, I pointed out in the sermon, of my
1: mother, seeing Mm. her groaning and seeing how God respond to that, and rehearsing times where God has taken my groan and allowed me to experience His glory. Not to the point that my groan disappeared. The groan necessitates the glory. The groan is seen in light of the glory. And so I I rehearsed that, I revisited that, I re-experienced that so that the congregation is only, if you will, overhearing my own soliloquy. It's my talking to myself. right? And they are hearing what I've been saying in private now in
0: public. Bless the Lord, O my soul, talking to himself. So let's listen to Dr. Robert Smith talking to himself and talking to all of us in this great sermon, The Glory of the Groan" from Romans chapter 8.
1: God started a revival in the preaching of Charles Haddon Spurgeon for the people flock to hear him. They came to hear the preacher in the church instead of the preacher of the church having to go to them. And they came. They came to the New Park Baptist Church. They came to temporary meeting houses and music halls. They came to the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle, a facility that was constructed with 5,000 seats and had room for 1,000 standees 6,000 persons, and Spurgeon filled it up on Sunday morning and Sunday night for 30 consecutive years. They came. They came to the Surrey Garden Music Hall on October the 19th, 1856. Spurgeon would preach there for the first time, and 10,000 people filled that place. James Earl Massey calls preaching the burdensome joy. And Gardner Calvin Taylor calls it the sweet torture of Sunday morning. But on that day, there was no joy, there was burden. There was no sweetness, there was torture. For in that crowd of 10,000 people, some mischief makers screamed out, fire, fire, fire a stampede ensued and seven people were left dead and 28 people were injured. This shadowed the life of Spurgeon, plunging him into a pit of depression out of which he would never emerge for the rest of his life and it served as a symbol for the horror that can befall the very people of God. On September the 11th, 2001, I stood up in my classroom, S-305, to open up our day's work by calling for prayer requests. I was not prepared for what I would hear, for I had not watched the news before I left home. I hadn't turned the radio on while I was making my way to school. Dr. Smith, I think we ought to, in light of the most recent development, pray for our country in light of the fact that a plane guided by terrorists has flown into one of the Twin Towers. Before that class was over, the second tower was struck. And America, since that time, has been shadowed by this disaster, plunged into a pit of depression, and it has served for us a symbol for how horror can fall upon any nation at any time. We are here to walk with Saints Charles Haddon Spurgeon, not to copy him, but to try to comprehend him and to understand his understanding of preaching. He said, and these are his words, preaching is for the glory of God. He said, preaching that is done aptly is done to accomplish two purposes. One, the edification of the saints. Two, the salvation of sinners. And he shows us how both of these come together in his sermon, Songs in the Night, taken from Job 35 and 10. Where is God my maker? who giveth songs in the night. He opens up the sermon by referring to the Aeolian harp. He says the Aeolian harp renders sweet music when the wind blows through the strings. But the difficulty is when there is no wind. He says a singer can sing as long as there is light to read the notes on the music sheet. But the difficulty comes when there are no rays of light from the sun, then the skillful singer has to reach inside of himself to his living existence and come in contact with the spirit and sing from the interior book. He says, any fool, these are his words, any fool can sing during the day. He says, it's unnatural to sing in trouble. It's unnatural to sing at night. Therefore, the believer gets his songs from God, for God gives songs during the night. We have not come here to mourn. We have come here to sing. I've come here to sing. I've seen the lightning flashing. I've heard the thunder roar. I've felt sin's breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus telling me to still fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. This teaching pericope, chapter 8 of Romans 18 through 30, gives to us a movement from glory to glory. Verse number 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that shall be revealed. The uninaugurated glory, the unrealized glory, the not yet glory. Paul is saying there's a glory that's going to be ours, but it's not yet. It's in the future. And when I think about that, I think about what Gierte, this German poet, renowned, said. He said that he watched a puppy being born. As soon as the puppy was born, he picked up the poor puppy and pulled it by the ear. And he said the puppy's eyes that were closed was, was trying to strain to look toward the light. And there is something within us, since we are made in the image of God, that strains for the sum of righteousness. Who rises with healing in his wings. There's something there. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Uh, my hopes and all my treasures are laid up there in the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. There's a straining toward the not yet. This is the way John puts it in First John 3 and 2. He says, it does not yet appear what we shall be. Future. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Dr. Gardner Taylor astounded me with this remark, but to show what God is doing in our lives, he said that when Jesus appears and the Son, small s of God, stands next to the Son of God, capital S, The angel will look at us and we will look so much like Jesus that the angels will ask, who's Jesus? Because it have not yet appeared. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's, It's future glory. But there's present glory. Verse number 30. For since he has predestinated us, he also has called. And those whom he has called, he has justified. And those he has justified he has also, present, glorified. We have within us the Immaculate Day. We have the image of God. And we can never find rest, according to Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our souls cannot find rest until they find rest in thee. But we want more of what we already have. We want more of the glory. We want more of this Christ. James Earl Massey was preaching at the E.K. Bailey International Conference on uh, Expositor Preaching, Wednesday night at the Concord Baptist Church. And he lifted up this illustration. He says, When a baby is disgruntled and upset and crying uncontrollably, the mother will pick up that baby and press that baby against her breast, And after a while, that baby will be comforted and stop crying. He explained it this way, that baby has become reconnected with the primal tone, the heartbeat of the mother. It goes back to the time when it was in the womb of the mother and heard that heartbeat all the time. But now that it has come out of the womb, it is only when it is pressed against the breast of that mother that it hears the primal tone. We... Long for the primal tone. Sunday morning is not enough. We want to be somewhere where the wicked ceases from troubling and the weary is at rest. And every day is Sunday and we have uninterrupted worship. I wonder about us sometime. One hour is too much for us. But when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. What are you going to do when there is no benediction? What are you going to do when there is no intermission? What are you going to do when there is no interlude? (laughs) Praising my Savior all the day long. We move from glory to glory. This teaching paragraph, this teaching pericope, also gives to us a theology of the cross and a theology of glory. It's right there in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings, theology of the cross, are not worth being compared to the glory, theology of glory, that is to come. It is what we are informed by when Luther challenges and criticizes the scholastics he says that the, the scholastics have a theology of glory of attainment of achievement they need a theology of the cross the bible never separates a theology of the cross or a the theology of glory Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 24 verse number 26 when he is talking to these downcast disciples going from Jerusalem to Emmaus he says, was it not necessary, that word day, was it not necessary, past tense, for the Christ, the first suffer, theology of the cross, and then enter glory, theology of glory. There it is in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. God, according to the predetermined counsel of God, his set purpose, handed Jesus over to evil men who nailed him to the cross. Theology of the cross. But the third day, he raised him from the dead. Theology of glory. There it is in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 12. If we suffer with him, theology of the cross, we will reign with him. And so brothers and sisters... I listen anew to Charles Spurgeon. He says, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who have not first been cross bearers on earth. You say you want to wear a crown? Then you're calling for suffering. And when I talk about suffering, I'm not talking about the fact that you get sick. I'm not talking about the fact that you stub your toe. I'm not talking about the fact that you're unemployed. I'm talking about when you and I suffer because of our stand for Christ, because of our commitment for Christ, because they are scorning us, because we have taken a a stand for Jesus Christ. I'm talking about that. Then you will bear in your body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is in this teaching pericope also Trinitarian presence and Trinitarian activity. We have for so long been irresponsible in talking about the Trinity. We have fragmented the Trinity. We have splintered the Trinity. We have made the third person of the Trinity, the stepchild of the Trinity. We need to speak responsibly about the Trinity. In fact, when I really think about it, I hear James Weldon Johnson in God's trombones Seven Negro sermons in verse. It's a wonderful poem on the creation that God stood out on nothing and God took nothing and told nothing to become something. And when God had made everything, then God says, I'm lonely. I think I'll make a man. May I say this to you? God has never been lonely. The Trinity has always interacted throughout human history and even in pre existent eternity and we must speak responsibly about the trinity Jonathan Edwards says in the breath of his writings that God has forever existed in a sweet and holy society as father son and holy spirit here there is trinitarian activity there it is in verse 28 for we know that God God father God Causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to the purpose of God. There it is. In verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate that he might be conformed to the image of his dear son. God, the son. And there it is in verse 26 and 27. And the spirit helps our weaknesses. For when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, sighs too deep for words. And the Spirit who has access to our minds, since we have access to God, Romans chapter 5, we have access, God has access to us, searches the hearts of the saints, knows the mind of the spirit. God only knows God's self. In fact, John says in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen, no one has known God except the one and only God, the sui generis God, the unique God, his son who's in the bosom of the father. He has declared him. He has exegeted him. He has made him known. And so there is Trinitarian activity even in this teaching paragraph. But there is a trilogy of groans. Verse 22. Creation groans. In fact, the Greek has it creation groans together, it is univocal groaning. It is groaning with one voice, all creation. Groaning. Why? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin came into the world as a result of the the disobedience of humanity, it ricocheted off of humanity and affected creation. And the penalty that man, that humans were suffering, was also inflicted, if you will, on creation. So the creation lost its equilibrium, lost its balance. And now, roses had thorns. And the lion no longer would lie down with the lamb. And the leopard would no longer lie down with the bear. And we had earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes. And ever since that day, sin has wreaked havoc on creation. And creation is groaning desiring for Isaiah 65 and 17 to be fulfilled. God will make new heavens and a new earth, groaning. The image there in verse number 22 is that of um, a woman in childbirth, and childbearing. She's travailing, groaning under the pain. The water has not broken. And everybody who knows anything about childbirth understands that when the water breaks, no midwife can keep that baby from coming. No obstetrician can keep that baby from coming when the water breaks. And one of these days, the water will break for creation. And God will transform this world. In fact, it will be of such... That there will be no longer epidemics, no longer famines, no longer dust storms. In fact, nature will be so changed and will undergo such a metamorphosis that we won't get sick. We don't even have to eat the fruit, but the leaves of the tree will be good for the healing of the nation. And uh, the beast of the wild will be led by a child and will be changed from the creature that we are. Creation is groaning waiting for its deliverance but not only is creation groaning verse 23 creatures are groaning we are groaning believers saints are groaning why would we groan paul has just told us in chapter 8 verse 15 that because of our relationship because and the greek has it in terms of adoption sun placing We've been placed in his family, which severs our former ties. We are in his family now. And therefore, we can cry out, Abba, Father. Why would we groan? Verse number 16 tells us that because of this, that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, if the Spirit testifies with my spirit and says, you God's kid. Why would I groan? Verse 17 says, of Romans 8, that we're not only heirs, but we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. That what he has, we have. My God, if we have all of that, why would we groan? The text says in verse 23, this image of the first fruits of the spirit, which is synonymous to what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that the Spirit is the earnest, the deposit, the down payment. If you will, your ID card, that you are a card-carrying member that proves that you belong to the family of God. And since my name is written in heaven, and my witness is on high, and you can't get to it, to delete it, to erase it or white it out. It's there permanently. Seems to me that we'd have no reason to groan. But we do. Why? Because we're waiting for the adoption of sons. Well, Paul, I thought you just got finished saying in verses 15 to 17 of the same chapter that we've already been adopted, that the Spirit has already testified that we are the children of God, that we can cry out, Abba, Father," because he is our Father, and that we're heirs and joint heirs of Christ then, What do you mean, since you said we were sons, now you're saying we're waiting for the adoption of sons? My spirit has been adopted. I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I am redeemed spiritually. But my body is not. My body is decayed. If you don't believe your body is decayed, I know that some of us can take a look in the mirror and get high looking at ourselves. But keep on living. You're going to discover... That's something going on in my body. I'm not the same. And there's no sense of being mad for years and telling your wife, you know, you don't look the same. Have you looked in the mirror lately? You don't either. Something is happening to our bodies. We are breaking down. Old Mother Johnson and our church used to say, there's a leak in this old building. And my soul has got to move. Move to a building not made by hand. This body... Knows that it can't go to heaven this way. It's waiting for full adoption. And so, therefore, creatures, saints, groan. But God groans. Verse 26. Likewise, in the same manner, the spirit helps. That same word, help, is found in Luke. 10.4, where Martha says to the Lord, tell Mary to help me. The spirit, the pneuma, helps. Comes the paraclete for us. Stands alongside of us to assist us and help us. Why? Because we don't know what to pray. Therefore, the spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be interpreted groaning sighs too deep for words. And then the Spirit, who searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit, prays for us in accordance to the will of God. God groans? During the incarnation, God came from God. John 1.14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God came from God. The Nicene Creed has it right God from God, true light from true light. God groans during the crucifixion. God, who came from God during the incarnation, forsook God. Mark 15, 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in this text, during the intercession, God talks to God. God groans to God. Now, I know that this is a battleground for interpretation. Who's groaning? Some say, well, the creature, the saint is groaning. Why would Paul, who has already said in verse 23 that we groan, Move to verse 26 and say again, we groan. Seems to me that someone else is being uh, referred to here. Seems to me. Likewise, in the same manner, mm, the Spirit does this. Others will say, God is doing the groaning. And the reason why God has to groan is because he has to make an intercession for us because we don't know what to pray. And since we don't know what to pray, then God, the Spirit, has to pray for us. In words that cannot uh, even be uttered. And then take to God. God talking to God. What God has heard us say. So consequently maybe it's not. Either or. Maybe it's both and. Maybe. My groan is swallowed up in his groan. Maybe. My groan is transcended by his groan. Maybe when I'm trying to. Say it. And I don't have the words. I can't articulate it. Maybe God, the Spirit, takes my groans, interprets my groans, and tells God what I was trying to say, but I wasn't able to say. My mother used to, I used to watch her. I didn't understand it. When we had physical needs, lacks, no food sometimes. And she'd walk around. And start moaning because black folk used to say, when you moan, the devil doesn't know what you're talking about. And she'd say,
0: Mmm-hmm. Mmm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And tears be rolling down her eyes. No food. After a while, somebody's knocking on the door. Here comes some turnip greens. Here comes some cornbread. I'm not telling you about what I heard. And all she did was to moan, and I didn't understand her, and I didn't dare ask her because she wasn't moaning to me. (laughs) Is it possible that when pressure is really on you, when there are losses in your family, when there's unemployment, when there are uh, relational rifts, When disease is in your body and you don't know what to say, I don't care what your GPA is, I don't care what kind of linguist you are, you just can't come up with the words. And when you try to form the words, they get stuck in your throat. And the only thing you can do is just groan. I was just talking to Dr. Ross this morning and he said that his wife said that a heartfelt groan is sometimes better than a sung anthem because if you can't say it, he understands. In fact, he can even understand your tears. Tears are a language that God understands, and that's all you can give him are your tears. He'll take your tears and put them in a bottle against the day of remembrance, because God understands. Maybe that's one of the things God does, but maybe, because verse 27 ends with these words, that he makes intercession for us in a, with God's will. Maybe the spirit has to take my groan, my desire, my yearning, which is misdirected because I'm praying according to my felt and perceived needs. And the spirit has to take my groans and my prayers, straighten them out and say, God, this is what he means and this is what he wants, but this is show what he needs. God, I want you to give me a $100,000 salary when I go to my first church and I want an uh, a, a, a unlimited expense account. I want to drive a BMW and I want uh, an unlimited um, library account and all of that. And God says, I hear what he's saying, but let me straighten out because I've got to pray according to God's will. God, what he needs is humility. I want to move him out In the country where he will preach to 20 people for five years. He will be the chairman of the deacon board because there are no deacons. He will be the superintendent of the Sunday school because he is the most qualified. He will be the chairman of the custodial committee because there are no janitors. And he will be the song leader because the only one he there that can lead songs is him. And I want him to stay there in the back side of the desert in Midian for about five years until he learns to be faithful over a few things and when he's faithful over a few things I'll raise him up and he will be ruled over many. He can't handle five talents if he doesn't appreciate the one talent and what God will do is we'll have these prayers that are so narcissistic and so self centered and God will say that's what he means but I want to tell you what he needs and God will give us what we need. I'm so glad that God has vetoed so many of our prayers. Some young ladies want to get married so bad. They say, God, give me a man. I want to give you the profile of the man I want. I want him to be tall, dark, and handsome. And God says, I hear you, but that's not what you want. You need a man that is short, light-skinned, and looks like uh, somebody that you don't want to think about right now. Because if you marry him, that man will love you. If you marry him, that man will show godliness in the home. If you marry him, he'll be a good father. If you marry him, he'll be faithful to the Lord. You don't need a dense. Washington, you need a Sammy Davis Jr. in terms of looks. And if we keep on pressing it, God will give you what you want and you won't want what you got. And some of us are trying, and this is my own way of saying it, to unget what we got. He prays according to the will of God. Aren't you glad that he did answer some of your prayers? Just maybe he does that. Our exegesis has to match our experience. Dr. Massey has reminded us over and over again, never preach above your experience. And we'll argue over this text. Who's this? You know something? It really doesn't matter if we don't pray. What difference does it make if we don't pray? If we're not groaning, what difference does it make? There's going to come a time when you're going to stand in your ministry and the only thing that's going to keep you is not your GPA. The only thing that's going to keep you is not your theological seminary, as important as that is. What will keep you is your spiritual relationship with God that you have become a person of prayer. And when the world has turned against you and when the bottom of life has dropped out and when you feel like saying... To God, like Jeremiah, I want to resign. I said I wouldn't say anything in his name anymore, but his word was in my heart like fire. Shut up in my bones. Belief, I tell you, is what you may hold, but conviction holds you. Spurgeon said, I would rather give up my sermon than give up my prayer. Your experience has to match your exegesis. You can have a four-point average and flunk in ministry. You can write excellent papers and you should. And flunk in ministry. There has to be something more than being a good preacher. There has to be something within that holds the reins, Something within that vanishes pain. Something within that we cannot explain. All that we know, there is something within. My father in the ministry, Dr. George Q. Brown, you sufferings suffering Alzheimer's disease. He didn't even know his wife any longer. But a few years ago, about three years ago, we had him brought down from Cleveland, Ohio to Cincinnati, and uh, we had a celebration program for him. He doesn't talk in an intelligible way. He slurs, he mumbles. And at the end of the program, after everyone had given their remarks and pastors who had pastored with him 30 some years before, given their remarks, he was on the program to sing "Precious Lord." How's he gonna do that? He can't talk. He doesn't know the words any longer. But his wife, of fifty some years, stood next to him. She's a singer in her own right. gave him the mic, and the organist played. And when it was time for him to sing, she whispered in his ear, "Precious Lord." Precious Lord. Take my hand, lead me on, lead me on, and she just kept feeding him the words, standing alongside of him, and helping him, and when he didn't have the words, he took the words she gave him and sung, and when he couldn't continue, she finished the song. I think that's what happens when we don't have the words. The Spirit will take our mumbling and clarify it and tell God exactly according to the will of God what we meant. Well, I thank God that there is a verse 28 in this episode. Paul wrote, according to most New Testament scholars, Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. Not from Rome, but from Corinth. When he wasn't in jail. He's in prison in Rome. Not as a political prisoner, but as a witness of Christ. And it's much easier to write Romans 8.28 when you're not in Rome. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But when you're in Rome, it's much more difficult to live out Romans 8.28. When I see what God has done, it amazes me. He causes all things to work together for good. And all things are not good. But he can recycle them and make something good according to his purpose come out. Joseph would tell you, what happened to me in itself, isolated, was not good. He wrote Genesis fifteen twenty. What you meant unto me for evil brothers, God meant unto me for good to save much people alive. And Judah was saved and out of Judah would come Jesus. But he didn't say that overnight. It took him 20 years to say that. He didn't say that when his brother sold him into slavery. And he did not say that when Mrs. Potiphar put a phony molestation charge on him. And he did not say that when the chief cupbearer forgot about him. But when he looked back over his life in the words of Sir and Kicker God, life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. He could see that God was up to something. And as he says, God brought him to Egypt. Brothers and sisters, things in themselves may not be good, but God can bring a good purpose out of it for those who really love God and to those who are called according to God's purpose. When I look at the tragedies that have taken place in America, I wonder how God can bring good out of them. They run like lines of credits in movies across the screen of my mind. Columbine, Katrina, Jonesboro, Virginia Tech, where a 76-year-old Jewish professor of engineering stood in front of the door, giving enough time for students to climb to the edge of the window and jump out to safety. And he suffered the consequence of this deranged assailant taking his life. How can God bring any good out of that? Well, as horrible as that is, there is something that is even more horrific that looked senseless, that looked meaningless, so meaningless that the Jews called it a stumbling block and the Greeks called it foolishness for the Jews couldn't understand how that could be a blessing when they said, Cursed be the man that hangs on the tree. It was ridiculous. So ridiculous, the way we look at it, that God didn't even watch it. The father turned his back on his son. And earth started protesting. Midday became like midnight. The earth reeled and rocked like an inebriated man. Peter and six disciples went back fishing. And two on the road from Jerusalem went back to Emmaus. It was horrible. Nothing good could come out of that. But you have to hang around long enough. Because three days later, God caused it to work together for good. Because God had a purpose to bring out of it. And sure enough on Friday, it looked meaningless, it looked ridiculous. On Saturday, it looked hopeless. But on Sunday morning, God brought treasure out of what seemed to be trash. And on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead with all power in his hands. Oh yeah, I want to tell you today as you sit here in your seats that God is the one who can take a groan and bring glory out of it. Yeah, God, Sister Darlene, as I was talking to you yesterday, can bring you joy in the midst of your storm. Because I suffered the same thing 23 years ago. But God is able to take your life and straighten it out. So that you can bless his name for what he has done. Yes, there will be glory, wondrous glory, glory around the throne of God, glory, giving him praise, glory, lifting his name, glory. He turns our groans into glory. And we will exalt, rejoice in him while we'll exalt him forevermore.
0: I want to tell you about a wonderful event that's planned for this summer. It's the 25th Annual Beeson Pastor School. The dates are July 23 through 26, 2012, right here on our campus. A wonderful array of workshops, seminars, Worship services, great Bible teaching by Dr. Steve Brown. My colleague, Dr. Robert Smith Jr., will be preaching along with our friend, Bishop Will Williman. It's going to be a wonderful time. Hope you'll come and join us. In Matthew 6.31, Jesus said to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And we hope that you'll do that this summer at the Beeson Pastor School. For more information and to register for the Pastor School, just go to our website, BeesonDivinity.com. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com.